thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to 100 Not Out, featuring your hosts, Dr. Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce. Welcome to another edition of 100 Not Out, a weekly show dedicated to helping you master the art of aging well. My name is Marcus Pierce, and I am here with the fabulous, sensational co-founder of The Wellness Couch and The Wellness Guys, his Dr. Damien Christoph. Hi, Damo. Hello, Marcus. How are you, mate? I am fabulous. We have got a wonderful guest today, Damo. I want to tell you a little story because I'm a little bit excited about this interview. Back in November 2012, I was reading my trusty Herald Sun newspaper when two headlines <laughs> grabbed me. The first one, Australia in danger of Alzheimer's epidemic. The second one, an editorial with the headline, Easy Fight Against Cruel Alzheimer's. So the first article featured a warning by some of Australia's leading Alzheimer's and dementia experts that our lifestyles were on the verge of busting the damn wall with cases of diabetes and, in the longer run, dementia. Mm. And then what these experts warned was that our lack of exercise and poor diet were the major contributing factors to this growing incidence. Uh, it wasn't our gene, tats lotto, it wasn't our family history, but in fact the very thing that we could control and that was our lifestyle. Mm. And then on the back of that research, the Herald Sun ran this editorial with the headline, Easy Fight Against Cruel Alzheimer's, which... I love because the editor was actually ripping into the Australian beer culture, junk food culture, or the really the Western world culture, and was saying it's actually easy to justify in our culture an extra beer, burger, or donut because you only live once, right? Well, exactly, the editor went on to say, we only do get one shot at it, so let's actually live this life well the first time. Mm. So one of the experts featured in the article was Alzheimer's Australia Victorian Chief Medical Advisor, Associate Professor Michael Woodward, and he's been good enough to join us on 100 Not Out today. Professor Woodward, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, it's good to be part of it. Professor, I just want to clarify more for our listening audience. Um, a lot of the time, dementia and Alzheimer's often get bandied about in the same sentence. Just to begin with, would you be kind enough to clarify the differences between the two? Yes, they're often uh, misunderstood. One is a overarching term. Dementia means loss of cognitive or brain function, particularly memory, but also of a sufficient degree of severity to start making it difficult for us to do our day-to-day -day activities. So if you've got dementia, you don't just have memory problems, you've got problems with uh, your day-to-day uh, -day activities. You might have difficulty remembering what is appropriate clothing to wear for the weather. You might have difficulty remembering how to, uh, micro how to program the microwave or to operate the remote controls or how to transfer money, skills you've previously had that you're losing. So that's what dementia is, memory problems and functional problems. Alzheimer's is the commonest cause of dementia. It causes about 60% of cases of dementia, and that's due to a specific buildup of sticky protein or amyloid plaques in the brain, along with what are called tangles. Mm. And, and so... Professor, the, the, the symptoms, are they quite similar or is one more aggressive than the other? What, what's the difference there? Well, dementia can go from being very slow to very aggressive, as can Alzheimer's, the commonest cause of dementia. So, uh, Alzheimer's, on average, from the time of first symptoms to, unfortunately, the time the person passes away is about nine years. But there's a lot of variation. Some people have taken a, a lot longer to run the full course of the disease. Other people, unfortunately, it can progress more rapidly. 
Mm. And so, in your in your view of the world, Professor, um, how do you, how did we get into this mess? Well, I think we have to ask ourselves, why do we have dementia? Where does it come from? And the truth is, we don't know. What we do know is that it's a disease predominantly of older people, although it can occur even as early as the uh, ages of 30 and 40. But generally, it's a disease which has uh, its first onset in your 70s. And we know that uh, 150 years ago, not many people reached 70, so it was regarded as a bit of a rarity. But now, with the life expectancy over 80 for males and females, it's becoming very very, very common. So that, if you'd like, the mess is because we're living longer. Okay, so Professor, this is where I really, uh, as I said in, in my introduction, I really love where a lot of the recommendations seem to be going these days, and that is lifestyle. From what I've learned, um, dementia can take 20 plus years to develop before we actually can actually diagnose it. We know that some cancerous tumors can take seven plus years to develop. So I often talk about um, when I'm presenting to actually think about dementia as a weed that can be 20 years under the ground and who out there in the world goes out and does weeds or weeding that's not actually coming above ground for another 20 years. It's a very unurgent, uh, I suppose, disease for many people because it takes so long to develop. So my question is how do you actually think we educate people that the urgency in preventing uh, Demetrio, putting the probabilities in our favour, how do we go and communicate that to the public to actually make this an urgent lifestyle decision? Yeah, there's some very important points there. The first one is because these proteins and tangles build up in the brain for, as you say, 20 or 30 years, even before memory problems develop, that gives us an opportunity to do something about it. But as you also say, if this process is beginning in most people in their 50s and 60s, when many people still feel at the peak of their life, how do you actually convince them to do something about it? Um, we've had the same problems with, say, heart disease and cancer. Many of these are lifestyle related, but I think people are getting the message there. Less people are smoking, more people are checking their cholesterol, more people are doing physical exercise. So if we can turn it around for diseases of younger people predominantly, like heart attacks and cancer, we can probably turn it around also for diseases of older people like dementia. And in fact, it's fortuitous that the very same lifestyle changes that you need to do to keep your heart healthy are generally the lifestyle changes that will also keep your brain healthy. Isn't that great? And we've been speaking about diabetes for years and heart disease and cancer for years and there's increasingly more and more evidence to suggest that uh, significant lifestyle change and sometimes even small lifestyle changes can actually improve it. I mean, you go as far as saying just quit smoking and, and that's going to bring about massive vascular changes in the body and you think about you know decreasing sugar and saturated fat and those sorts of things and the impact of that on diabetes and heart disease is enormous and if, if you've only got to change those same things to prevent dementia then it seems to make more sense doesn't it? It absolutely does. And we have, as you say, turned things around there. It's a worrying thing, however, that we are getting increased numbers of people with obesity and diabetes. And I think that's where a lot of attention needs to be. These are risk factors, not just for heart disease, not just for cancer, but also for Alzheimer's disease. The other thing about Alzheimer's is risk reduction does go a little further than just cardiovascular risk reduction. We can also reduce our risk of Alzheimer's if we keep our brain active, if we keep socially engaged. And these aren't so important for heart disease, but they certainly are important for reducing the risk of dementia. 
just before Marcus goes on there, Michael, oh, sorry, Michael, uh, Professor, I, I was just thinking while you were saying that, we've been interviewing um, many, many people on uh, on this particular podcast who have been ageing successfully. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to, you know, show people that you can age beautifully even beyond, you know, 100 years old. And uh, and there's a common theme, and, and these, this common theme is bundled into three different things. And the three things that we've found that seem to exist in people's lifestyles that are aging well are exercise, um, purpose, and engagement. And they seem to be, in reading the paper that you presented with the government, appear to be um, the, the three common themes that, uh, that showed up in prevention of dementia and Alzheimer's as well. Yes, isn't it wonderful that we can we can multitask? We can be trying to change people's attitude to health for one purpose, but it might also have benefits in other areas. And let's face it, it's far better in terms of your own self-esteem and your uh, interactions with your peers to be regularly exercising and fit than not. So there are immediate benefits from these lifestyle changes. It's not just an investment in your future 30 or 40 years down the track. So, Professor, can I ask you then, clinically, how do you go um, in in the sense of when you're with people who have either just been diagnosed or are more, probably more in that risk factor? So, someone that's obese who's in their fifties, I, I know, you know, if they've got um, obesity and either high blood pressure or cholesterol, uh, the research suggests they're six times more likely to end up with dementia. How do you go about communicating that to your to your patients, and then? How do you find compliances or the shock factor is it actually go out and, and follow your recommendations? I, I'm trying to get a sense as to how the community is actually responding to, to these diagnoses in either midlife um, or as they get older. It's certainly easier if it's personalised. If the individual already has problems with their memory, then I think the message becomes uh, much more powerful. Or if they've cared for a mother who's had dementia or a, or a husband or a wife with dementia, I think the message is, is far more powerful. Um, but I think we also have to uh, just tell the person that uh, it's much better to be healthy than to, not, than to be not healthy and that um, you know, these sorts of interventions are not rocket science, nor are they impossible. We're not asking a person to eat just grapefruit for a month or to, to, to run a marathon or, or what have you. These, these, are, these, are very, these are very approachable interventions. Um, and in fact, the research we've done, admittedly research tends to attract motivated people, but the research we've done shows that the lifestyle changes tend to be adopted long-term, not just for the duration of the study. So exercise studies, for instance, the person will usually remain physically more active even after the study has been uh, uh, completed. Well, yeah, that's a great point because once people are fit, they don't generally want to lose their fitness if they've been able to develop the habit for a long period of time. And, and like you say, the motivation's there because a lot of people don't want to go back to where they were. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and uh, yeah, motivation is certainly a part of it. But seeing the benefits, seeing yourself you know, more able to, to run without getting completely puffed, you know, just finding yourself that at work you're the only one who can climb up the three flights of stairs without getting puffy, they're, they're positive reinforcements that you want to keep going forever. Yeah, massive. Now, I've got a curly one for you, I think. This is curly. Um, we're, we're taking a group of people to a Greek island called Icaria later in this year, Professor. Um, and on this Greek island, there's, there's five what's called blue zones in the world. And Icaria on the Greek islands is one of them. And it's, 
They suffer. There's, there's over 8,000 people on this mountainous island. They suffer 80% less dementia, 50% less heart disease, and 20% less cancer. And there's all kinds of research and, and principles that, that have been applied to why it is that this occurs. But from what you've learned about lifestyle and its role in dementia, why do you think some populations in the world, you know, like Akeria and even Okinawa in Japan and, and some of the other smaller populations of the world, why do you think some populations have far less brain disease than others. I suppose I'm saying, do you think it's all lifestyle-based or are there some other bits and pieces that we need to consider as well? I'm sure it's more than just lifestyle, but it certainly does sound that a mountainous island where you're constantly having to walk up and down uh, uh, steep slopes, and I've been to some of these Greek islands where there's not many alternatives. You don't have motorised vehicles on some of the very steep slopes. I think this is a a great way to ensure that uh, people do uh, keep physically fit, and no doubt diet is also good. Um, But um, I also think that um, there might be a genetic factor. We do know, for instance, uh, that certain... uh, uh, Scandinavian races uh, lack an enzyme that's needed to make that amyloid protein and they've lacked this enzyme for the whole of their life and they also have a greatly reduced risk of dementia so there may well be some genetic factors at play in these other communities. The whole gene thing is um, is so interesting I, I find professor and it's you know from, from my perspective in the work that I do with a lot of nutrition work um, we're looking at nutrigenomic profiling for a lot of our patients and the information that's coming out of all of that, it, it's so fascinating and, and I'm very, very excited about what we're finding out with genetic profiling and the studies of, of genetics, which is, which I think is a, a big, a, the right direction for us to be moving, I think. But uh, in, in 2007, um, you wrote, you presented a great paper, um, you know, on dementia, the risk and reduction um, the evidence as it was in 2007 and you mentioned back then that physical activity uh, was a possible protector, Um, ongoing intellectual stimulation was a possible protector, leisure, higher education, anti-inflammatory approaches so I I know that you mentioned drugs there but I think also you might have um, tended to think to other things that could reduce uh, inflammation and certainly the research since then has suggested that other substances with a similar sort of activity might be beneficial to statins you investigated, antihypertensives you investigated, alcohol you investigated. But one of the things that caught my eye was that you said that omega-3 fatty acids were unlikely to have any protective factors. But this is back in 2007. when I go to a lot of nutrition seminars, we're told about the amazingly protective benefits of things like DHA, which is a fraction of uh, of uh, the EPA DHA uh, component of fish oil, which appears to have, um, I suppose, more targeted benefit to the nervous system and cognition. Has it has it changed? Would you change your recommendations, or would you change that paper now that you, there's been more research, or do you think it's still about the same? No, over the last six years, there's been a lot more research on omega-3 fatty acids and uh, fish oils and what have you, and they do seem to have a greater role in prevention or protection. Mm -hmm. So, yes, certainly some of the data that was available back in 2007 has been supplemented by recent studies, and I would certainly recommend that people uh, have a uh, significant amount of omega-3 fatty acids, uh, such as in fish oil, in their daily diet as a prevention and possibly even as an approach to slow progress of memory problems if they already have that.
Oh, that's good, because I'm, I'm doing that. So I was hoping that was going to continue to work. So that's a good thing. Is there anything else that might have changed uh, since that report um, was published? Probably a couple of the things that we put in that original paper have been largely thrown out now. I might have mentioned in that paper that aluminium exposure was still possibly a risk factor for dementia. Yes. Um, uh, but ne- and, and therefore prevention might involve uh, keeping away from aluminium. But there's not as much evidence for that now. And most people working in the area don't think that aluminium got anything to do with Alzheimer's disease. It does with some rarer forms of dementia. So that one's out. Um, And there's a couple of other minor ones. But I think by and large, the findings of physical exercise, cardiovascular risk factors, social and mental engagements, education, mental stimulation, um, and also vigorous detection and treatment of depression, I think these risk reduction approaches are still as valid now as they were six years ago. And in fact, we've got even better at quantifying them. We know that we can probably present 42% of all dementia if everybody in society was sufficiently physically active. That's wow. a pretty powerful intervention. That's a big intervention. That's fabulous. And this is what you said earlier, uh, Professor Woodward, is the fact that this is multitasking. You know, what all of the things that you just mentioned there are also going to help prevent heart disease, going to help prevent, you know, high blood pressure, going to help prevent diabetes, going to help prevent a lot of the those diseases that people think are just a normal part of aging, but often it's just because they've got a deficient uh, lifestyle. Yes, that's right, exactly. And uh, and and people need to uh, improve their lifestyle, as I said, for many reasons. But I, I wouldn't want to spend the last 10 years of my life with Alzheimer's if I could prevent it. I mean, yes, it might only be the last 10 years, but when you're 70, those 10 years in front of you, or when you're 80, those 10 years in front of you are pretty important years. You want to be around for your children, for your grandchildren. You want to be able to travel. You want to be able to become, uh, remain an important member of society. And to have those robbed from you because of dementia is not your desire. Oh, of course not, not at all. I'm loving this conversation. I think it's excellent, Professor. Just a couple of things, and I know that because of what you know, um, you, you would be implementing many of these strategies. What are the sorts of things that you do to keep your brain healthy, the exercises you're doing? What are the things that you're doing that we could all be doing? Uh, well, I exercise probably more than most. I do about an hour and a half, and I burn up about a thousand calories per day, which is quite a lot for, for most people. Well done. Um, and I, but I, I, re- I don't. I, I dual task. In fact, I both exercise and keep my brain stimulated because generally, when I'm on the exercise bike, I'm reading a journal or reviewing an article, um, <laughs> and, and uh, I think Excellent. that's a, a nice way of getting two things done at the one time. Yeah. I certainly try and eat modestly. I've managed to lose thirty kilograms from a, a fairly heavy weight to a much more normal weight. Uh, uh, over the last few years, and that was an important thing. Hold on, stop right there. So Did I, you say I, you, you've lost 30 kilos over the last few years? I did. I was, I was nearly uh, 100 kilograms, and for my height, that was far too much, but I'm now down to a much more acceptable 70s. Oh, good on you. <laughs> good on you, Professor. That's excellent. Okay, so this yeah. is, okay tell the story. What was the, what was the ticker? What actually made you go, hold on, enough's enough? And what did you cut out that was toxic in your lifestyle that brought you back down to this healthy weight? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. I was on a sabbatical in Vancouver. I had a lot more control over what I ate and my lifestyle, and I happened to be living opposite the gym at UBC, University of British Columbia, so I just started to go to the gym for a couple of hours a day. Um, I had more time on my hands, as is often the case when one's on sabbatical, and uh, I managed to regulate my diet much more by having a, a modest uh, breakfast with a lot of fibre and then basically only having a second meal. Now, I'm not suggesting that for everyone, but it worked for me. I didn't feel hungry and and uh, I uh, managed to lose a great deal of calories uh, as a result of that approach. Well, I'm going to ask you then, are you a fan of the whole caloric restriction, which a lot of uh, longevity, well, a lot of life, uh, a lot of populations seem to have led where they actually don't eat as much as we would, I suppose, think is a normal amount. Um, two meals a day seems to be quite common in, in populations that are living quite well without dementia and diabetes and cancers and the rest. Is, is it something that you... Yeah, I was going to say that's that's very correct. Um, I certainly um, I think that three meals is more than many people need, um, and I find two meals a day is quite sufficient for me most of the time. I was once once upon a time, many many years ago, a Buddhist monk, and they have their two meals only uh, first thing in the morning and uh, before lunchtime, and nothing after that. And I didn't find that difficult then. And that was also the other time when I managed to lose a lot of weight. Not that that was the purpose. (laughs) They weren't feeding you. (laughs) <laughs> Excellent. So then what's for your breakfast and your second meal? What what do you like to eat on a daily basis, Professor? Uh, well, generally breakfast is a, a, a brand uh, product, uh, or brand or brand plus with um, with with cereal, and usually I have um, so good or soy product uh, as a milk, and then uh, an I might, evening might have meal. Might send you some of my breakfast cereal, then I think, Professor. Yes, don't see if we can improve that nutrition profile for you. <laughs> expect expect a Christmas um, present, delayed Christmas present in the mail. Okay, thank you very much. I'll look out for it. And then, uh, and then the evening meal. I tend to try. I, I'm a little less uh, able to regulate it now that I'm back in the world again. But uh, I tend to uh, have uh, a high predominance of salad ingredients or vegetables, and not too much uh, meat or fatty product. And my final question then is on the social side of things. What do you do? I know it's you know pretty easy, but. What do you do with your hard-working man? What do you like to do just to unwind, disengage um, after a hard day's work? Uh, look, I'm afraid I don't tick the boxes there. My hard day's work doesn't finish. I, I work right through till about 10 o'clock at night and I get up at about 4.30 every morning and start working immediately. The only time I'm not working is when I'm on the bike and I'm working then anyway, so I'm not a good example there, I'm afraid. What about on weekends? You take, do you have a day off on the weekend? I tend to have Saturday nights off and half of Sundays and uh, I've got a house down the beach. We tend to go down there and go for nice long walks and, uh, and uh, socialise down there. Yeah, well, there's nothing wrong with loving your work, Professor. I don't mean to uh, say that you should be working less, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with loving your work. There's been plenty of people, Damo, I think of Charles Eugster at age 93 who said the most important nutrient to a long and healthy life is to love your work. That's right. So. Um, I, have I certainly, no I certainly do love my work. I think it's a, it's, and, and I think it's just so important that we continue to make progress against Alzheimer's. I'm sitting in our research unit here. We've just seen two people today who are in our trials to try and prevent progression to Alzheimer's using monoclonal antibodies directed against uh, the amyloid protein. I think this is very important work. Well, Professor, we have so we are so grateful for the time that you've shared with us today, and I know all of our listeners will be so grateful for all the wisdom that you've shared. Thank you so much, and we look forward to speaking again with you soon. 
it's been my great pleasure and uh, hopefully as you say people will take this on board and look at their lifestyle look at the way they uh, live their daily uh, routine and uh, make any adjustments that might be necessary we do not want to get Alzheimer's disease we do not want to get dementia Damo, we have run out of time on this edition of 100 Night Out. Remember, folks, if you would like to join us on our Greek Island Longevity Tour to Ikaria, go to www.100notout.com. And remember, we love your feedback on this episode. You can provide it in any number of ways, but the best is to go to our website at www.thewellnesscouch.com forward slash 100 Not Out. Remember, if you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and also check out thewellnesscouch.com where you can view the entire range of wellness podcasts available, including the number one show, the wellness guys so until next week continue to make the rest of your life the best of your life this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com check us out on facebook and join in conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch subscribe to each show on itunes and check us out on twitter the wellness couch streaming wellness into your lives Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.